I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 11 once again as we continue our life-changing look at Jesus. Mark chapter 11 today, our focus will be on verses 20 through 25. So Mark 11, 20 through 25. great to hear all your pages turning and your copies of God's word. This is God's word beginning in verse 20, Mark 11. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, even as I stand here, I'm convicted of a lack of forgiveness in my own heart. And I confess that. And I pray for grace to forgive very specific people in my life. Lord, you know I wasn't planning on praying this at all. This is your spirit and I I thank you, Lord. I thank you. And Lord, at the same time, I thank you that you use ordinary guys that like to fish to proclaim the glorious treasure of you. So we're we're very humbled. I'm very humbled. May you bless the preaching of your word. Amen. We have three headings to help us work our way through the text for today. They're very simple. Figs, faith, and forgiveness, three words. They all start with F to help you remember. Figs, faith, and forgiveness. We're gonna jump right in because I have lots to say this morning with point number one, figs. It's found there in verses 20 and 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. It's now Tuesday morning. Jesus will be arrested in just a couple of days on Thursday, and he will be crucified on Friday. That's where we're at in the life of Christ. Since arriving at Jerusalem on Sunday, Jesus has been bouncing back between Jerusalem and Bethany. During the day, He's over in Jerusalem at the temple, 
But at night, he hikes two miles up and over the Mount of Olives, and he comes to the backside of the Mount of Olives, and he spends the night in a small town called Bethany. Then in the morning, he wakes up in Bethany, he takes that two-mile hike back over the Mount of Olives, and he arrives once again at Jerusalem to spend his day in the temple. Now somewhere along that journey, there is a fig tree. On Monday, we talked about Monday last week, on Monday, Jesus was hungry, and that's when he seemed to first notice that tree. Look back at verse 12 and 14. Again, we covered this last week, but we're going to refresh our memories real quick. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now you'll recall from last Sunday that the fig tree, it serves as a living metaphor, a real life parable that teaches us something about the temple. The temple that Jesus was visiting each morning, the temple appeared to offer life-giving spiritual fruit just like this fig tree appeared to offer figs, fruit to Jesus. But the temple, like the tree, was all show and no substance. It should have provided life-giving fruit, but it did not. That was Monday's parable. Today we find Tuesday's parable. Using the withered fig tree, Jesus gives us a second parable that again teaches us about the temple. We need to remember that at this point in Israel's history, the temple is the centerpiece. It's the hub of worship, of communing with God for the Jews. Now, during a major Jewish holiday like Passover, the holiday that Jesus is in town for with his disciples, they'll eat the Passover dinner on Thursday. But so during a, a major Jewish holiday like Passover, it was such a hub, Jerusalem was such a hub that that little city that normally had a population of scholars guess somewhere between 20 and 80,000 people, all right, on any given day, that city would swell to have 650,000 people or more, up to 2 million. This place was the hub. It's the center place of religious life for the Jew. Now, Tuesday's fig tree, it alludes to something extremely important that's happening with the temple. Look back at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. The fig tree was withered away to its roots. 
Israel's way of approaching God via the temple is coming to an end. It is withering away. The temple and all that goes on there, Israel's primary way to meet with and to commune with God is withering away. It is about to be replaced by one who is better than that human temple in every way. It is about to be replaced with Jesus. There will no longer be a harvest coming from the temple. Like the fig tree, Jesus is about to make it obsolete. The day before, Jesus did not merely cleanse the temple. How many times have you heard, well, we studied last week is the cleansing of the temple. Every time you hear that passage, probably. Jesus did not merely cleanse the temple. If he cleansed the temple, Jesus would have removed the impurities and restored the temple to its proper function. But Jesus did not cleanse it. He's dissolving it. Later on this Tuesday, Jesus will leave the temple for the last time in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And he will say, do you see these great buildings? Referring to the temple. There will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. Jesus did not cleanse the temple here. He ended it. Like the fig tree, the temple's function is withered away to its roots. Five days from these events that are taking place here in Mark 11, 12, and 13, five days away from these events on Resurrection Sunday, the temple will be rendered completely obsolete. The temple has served to foreshadow Jesus. But now that Jesus is here, it is no longer needed. The one to whom the temple has pointed to, he has arrived. And he has provided a new and a better way to commune with God. Now like the dead temple... Jesus' own body will soon be dead. But there is a huge difference between the two. The temple is still dead. Jesus raised from the dead. Just as he promised, John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now we know the earthly temple built by Herod by the time 70 AD rolls around, it was completely destroyed. And 1.1 million Jews were dead, killed by the Roman army. 
Jerusalem, the center of worship and the temple, they were dead and utterly destroyed. But unlike the Roman destruction of the temple that brought death to the Jews, the Roman destruction of Jesus on the cross brought life to the nations because he's better. Jesus was better. He is better and will always be better. Jesus was also better than the temple sacrifices. In fact, his sacrifice was better than all the temple sacrifices ever committed in every way. According to John 1 and Hebrews 10, Jesus is the Lamb of God who willingly gave up his life for all to take away the sins of the world. Something the temple sacrifice could not accomplish. And at the moment of his sacrifice, the moment of his death, we know that the great veil, the great curtain in the temple that separated God, separated God in the Holy of Holies from his people is torn into declaring to everyone that the old way of approaching God is now dead and the new way of approaching God is here through Christ. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not through the veil, not through the veil to get to the holy holies, but actually through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. It tells us in verse 16 to let us draw near now. Let's follow in his footsteps and draw near to that throne of grace with confidence. Church, Praise God the fig tree died. This is one of those passages that we can just kind of skim over in our reading. Mark does not include this detail for no reason. It served as a metaphor for the temple the day before, and it serves as a metaphor for the temple today. Praise God the fig tree is dead. No, praise God the temple is dead. God's people, made up of Jew and Gentile alike, no longer go to Jerusalem to go to the temple. We no longer look to temple priests or to temple sacrifices to draw near to God. Oh, what a privilege it is for us to draw near to God through Christ. We look not to a temple, but to Jesus. He alone is our access to God. He is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's what the figs, or the lack thereof, teach us about Jesus. Point number two, faith. Faith. This is found in verses 22 through 24. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. And truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will 
be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. You know, it's interesting that as Jesus travels from Bethany up over the Mount of Olives down to Jerusalem, he starts talking about moving mountains. As Jesus and his disciples would have crested the top of the Mount of Olives on their hike, they could have looked to their south and see mountains much like you and I here in Billings can look to our south and see mountains. The prior mountains are about 30 miles as the crow flies from where you sit. The bear tooths are about 50 miles. Now about nine miles from where Jesus and his disciples stood on the Mount of Olives is a mountain called the Herodian. It looks like a volcano. Here's the thing about Mount Herodian. It's man-made. King Herod, who of course was king during the birth of Christ, he's one of the greatest architects that have, has ever lived. He built and designed the temple. We saw the temple last week. Remember, that was magnificent. He built and designed the temple, but he also built and designed Mount Herodian. Herodian's peak is 2,500 feet above sea level. That seems to not matter because from the view around Herodian, like from the Dead Sea, it's even taller because the Dead Sea sits 1,400 feet below sea level. Inside of this mountain, remember, it's like a volcano, and inside, it kind of looks like a volcano that's erupted. Inside of the mountain sat luxury apartments for kings and queens. It included a swimming pool and running water, which is mind-boggling because it's the desert. Herod probably believed that it was the greatest thing he ever built, ever accomplished, because that's where he was buried. We just discovered his tomb a couple of decades ago. Here's the part that's most relevant to us. In order to build Mount Herodian, Herod took a second mountain and literally moved it, shoveled it, shovel by shovel, to build his mountain. Herod moved a mountain. And as Jesus speaks of moving mountains, the Herodian has no doubt been if is not now in sight. And Jesus, as he and his disciples see a moved mountain, Jesus tells his men that they will move even greater mountains than King Herod. Indeed, they would cast them into the sea. How? With shovels 
No. Faith. Have faith in God, Jesus says. Verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus, as the master teacher, he uses what's in front of his disciples, a dead tree and a moved mountain to excite them to encourage them to believe that God can and will do powerful things through their faith. You're excited about the fig tree, Peter? You see that mountain over there, the one that Herod moved? That's nothing compared to what God will do through you. Have faith in God. You will move mountains. What's it mean to have faith in God in this context? Well, it is Reformation Sunday. And since we didn't sing a mighty fortress is our God, Rick, (laughs) we'll go ahead and quote Calvin. Calvin on this passage says, to have faith in God is to expect and to be fully assured of obtaining whatever you need from God. To have faith in God is to expect and be fully assured of obtaining whatever you need from God. He points out that we're to take special notice that the faith Jesus speaks of here It manifests itself through prayer. Have faith in God. Whenever you pray, believe. Faith, this is a beautiful word picture he uses. Faith, it breaks out of our hearts through prayer. What does genuine, saving faith mean? look like prayer confident prayer genuine saving faith it it reaches it breaks out of our hearts in the form of our prayers and it reaches up into the treasuries of heaven and it confidently takes hold of what we need Believing that it is ours. Confidently believing that it is ours. Receiving whatever we need. Jeff, you're starting to sound like one of those preachers on TV. I am not a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher. But I want to say two things. Well, I think I just said the first thing. I am not a health, wealth, and prosperity teacher. (laughs) Second, you are among the most prosperous people in the world. 
Here's why I'm not a modern-day health, wealth, and prosperity pre preacher. Notice how Jesus is, notice how the prayers Jesus speaks of are connected intimately to your faith, not your flesh. One of, one of these things is deeply spiritual, holy, and good. That's your faith. The other is selfish, carnal, and corrupted by sin. Health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, they'll talk about faith and claiming things by faith, but what is it that they entice you to claim? Oftentimes, it's things of the flesh, things of this world. Jesus appeals to your faith. Prosperity preachers promise to give you things of this earth. Jesus promises to give you the things of heaven. Jesus is not promising to fulfill our materialistic cravings for the things of this world. He's promising his power for us to overcome the world. John 16, 33, here's a promise. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise Jesus made us. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. For the humble person of faith who depends upon God's goodness and grace, God promises to take care of all their needs. God promises to move mountains. This, of course, is a figure of speech. Linguists would call this a Hebraic hyperbole. Jesus is looking out, seeing the Herodian, and he's telling, guys, look at that. You would have thought that was impossible, but God, through your faith, can do the impossible. Why don't we see more mountains moved in your life? Why don't we see more mountains moved in you? Could it be that we live far too much by sight and not by faith? Could it be that we are far too motivated and driven by the flesh rather than motivated and driven by our faith? which would mean our prayers, our prayers that break out of our hearts, they flow more out of our flesh, more out of materialism, more out of sinful, selfish desires rather than a humble, 
lowly, dependent faith on God. Why don't we see more mountains moved? We don't need them moved. We got everything we need. Maybe we're happy with the mountains. Maybe we see the mountains and we're like, oh yeah. Listen, the Bible confronts our lifestyles. I think we could all agree that the Apostle Paul is a man who walked by faith and not by sight, by the flesh. How does your life compare to his? Oh, I'm being mean. I don't want to be mean. I'm just being honest, okay? How does your life, how does my life compare to the life of the Apostle Paul? Oh, man, Jeff, we don't have to live like Paul. Baloney, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Rick prayed it earlier. Be imitators of me as I follow the example of Christ. That's what Paul said. He essentially says the same thing in Philippians 3.17. Brothers, sisters, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now we're reading through 2 Corinthians right now through Abide. It's been really rich for me. In 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, which I think you read Thursday and Friday, it gives us some details about Paul's life. You're welcome to flip there if you want. I'm going to read it fast, though, because I'm running out of time. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. Imprisoned, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from the false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me about my anxiety for all the churches. How was your week? Need any mountains moved? few sentences later, sentences later, he says in chapter 12, so to keep me from becoming conceited about the revelation he had received, to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So on top of all these other things that Paul has experienced in his life, Paul's also tormented by a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan who is harassing him. So he asked Jesus to take the harassing, painful, satanic messenger away. And how does Jesus respond? My grace is sufficient for you. 
my power, my power to move mountains, my power is made perfect in weakness. So what's Paul do? It's okay. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ, you know, the power to move mountains, the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You talk about moving a mountain. This man didn't need a bunch of comforts. He wasn't asking for possessions. He didn't need food or safety or the approval or the praise of man to make him happy or content. What made him happy? What made him glad? What made him content? Weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, plural. Not because he loved pain, but because in the pain, in the valley, in the hardships, is where he found the power of God. The sweetness of God. My grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect when you're weak. Yes. Give me more. Give me more. So I can have more of you. That's what mountain moving looks like. Jesus took a man who had all this world has to offer in Paul. Power, prestige, possessions, popularity, a future. And Paul gives it all away. He considers it rubbish. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Who wants the faith to move mountains? We gotta go quick, forgiveness, point number three. Forgiveness is our last F. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Man, as a guy who still has a lot of mountains in his life, I need a word about forgiveness. 
You can't talk about Jesus. You can't talk about his gospel without talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the DNA of the gospel because forgiveness is in the DNA of Jesus. The Lord is a forgiving God. After man screwed up in Genesis, God reveals himself to Moses. He, he, he gives a testimony of himself for the first time there in Exodus 34. And in verses 6 and 7, he said, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin church god is a forgiving god and if that's not convincing enough we can look at jesus on the cross on the cross he experiences the single greatest act of injustice and evil ever committed to somebody and what comes out of him? If there's ever time to get angry and get even, now's it. But what's he do? He says, Father, forgive them. God is a forgiving God. To have faith in God is to believe in the God who forgives. Believer, he forgives you. He forgives you. Micah 7, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over sin. He does not retain his anger forever. He delights instead in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the sea. Like a mountain. He will cast our mountain of sin. Through faith into the sea. Church, that kind of God, that kind of love, that kind of forgiveness melts us. It melts us and it casts us into new men, new women. It melts us to shape us like Jesus, who forgives. We love because he first loved us. We forgive because he has forgiven us. So when you stand to pray, forgive. Let's pray. Jesus, you are better than everything in every way. 
Thank you for showing us another glimpse today. We thank you that the temple is dead and that you are building a new temple, you yourself being the cornerstone, and you're not using bricks or stones, you're using us, living stones. We thank you that you have boldly broken down the veil so that we might approach the throne of God with grace and confidence. Move mountains, God. Give us the faith to move mountains. And may we always be mindful of your forgiveness, that as we come to you, we would be reminded to forgive others. For this grace, we ask, we are utterly dependent once again upon you. Amen.